0: Welcome to The Football Studio, a show where I speak with influential people I look up to in the football industry. I'm Sebastian Alvarado. My goal with these conversations is to get to know the person behind the title. I want to understand how they think, how they got to where they are, and get their personal perspectives and insights on all things life, career, and football. Today, my guest is Tyro Aruda. He went from a humble upbringing working on his family's farm outside of Sao Paulo working in management consulting until he decided to get his MBA at Yale University. While at Yale, he came up with the idea of buying a football team in Europe. By applying statistical analysis and microeconomic theory, him and his partner came up with a formula that would ensure success in buying, managing and selling a football club. Does it sound a bit like Moneyball? Well, it's pretty close to it. Here's my conversation with Tyro Aruda. Tyro, welcome to the football studio. Oh, thank you so much. I could I couldn't be more honored to be
1: to be in your podcast. Man, uh, I've seen all the great people that you interviewed, and I cannot imagine that you you invited me to be here.
0: Well, I'll tell you, there's a lot of reasons to invite you here. I I remember from the moment I first met you and you were telling me what you were up to, you know, I was quite fascinated and also thinking that this guy must be crazy, (laughs) that you're kind of doing one of those things that a lot of other people would sit at the bar with their friends talking about, you know man, we should buy a club or this is how I would do it. Or we complain about, you know, owners and precedents and all of this. And we're all experts and we talk about it. But you're actually somebody who is doing it.
1: Just to make things clear, I also think that I'm crazy. (laughs) But at the same moment, uh, I remember, as you said, like, uh, it's difficult to imagine buying a club, right? And for me, it wasn't different. Like uh, when I was a child, I wanted to be a soccer player as everyone else. But didn't it didn't happen to me for sure? Of course. But then, like, uh, I started playing video games when I was young and say like, oh, uh, you know, Ellie Foods or Championship Manager, Football Manager, and I, I never had that idea of oh, one day I can have a club, right? That that was impossible, even for a dreamer, you know. And for some reason, I I I came to Yale and doing my MBA degree, and I organized a soccer conference there that uh, preceded uh, the Princeton one. And for some reason, I found that, you know what, I can buy a club, right? Why not? Like what, what, what stops me to do so? And then I started like understanding the industry and I felt that I felt empowered to, to pursue this career. And I felt like this is possible. And now like you know, one year and a half later, when I st- had the idea, it's kind of, for me, it's a crazy thing till now. But it's a lesson that I got from myself and that I can pass through, which is nothing is impossible in the world. Everyone can
0: just dream and do it. Totally. And we're going to get into a lot of the details. We're going to break it down. Um, How do you typically introduce yourself to somebody who you meet for the first time? So when they ask who you are and and what you do. Hmm. That is difficult, man.
1: I don't even know to answer to myself or to my father, who I am, right? I used to say to myself in my interior that, uh, that I'm just a dreamer, but, uh, of course, when I, when I'm talking in a meeting, for example, to a club owner that I want to buy the club, uh, I would say some professional things that I have like 10 years of working experience in management consulting firms in the U S and Brazil and that I studied in Yale and did my master's degree, and then I studied soccer for two, three, four years, that I organized a conference, and that then I studied, and, and now I'm there to buy their club.
0: In order to get to know you um, on a little bit more of a personal level, tell me about your, um, about your background and your story up until this point. So I, I
1: was born in a very small town in the countryside of Sao Paulo state in Brazil. And uh, my parents are medium, low class, you know, and my father has a farm in which I worked when I was a child to help him on agriculture, livestock. And then I worked in more like, uh, like even in construction sites uh, before getting to college. And for uh, my father always helped my mom, of course, always helped me to uh, to understand that uh, like education is the path to grow, and and then at some point I got to a to a college in Brazil to study computing engineering, which I regret at this point, but at the time was the best course to uh, to go. And during the college, actually, I started my first company it was a computing school. Uh, I got some knowledge on the, on that side as well, and then I started after the. the the school. I started my career in management. I worked like for ten years, as I said before, on consulting firms. Uh, was like management consulting firms, in which I grew in in more like a generalist career. So I can say that I know a bit about a lot of things, but not something very very specific. But a lot about uh, something very specific. But this career helped me to to understand the you know, the concepts of the, each industry. I worked like in, even in hospital, government industries and oil and, and retail, everything and different areas until I got to, uh, to, my, to do my MBA degree at Yale. And the MBA, uh, it was like my, my time that I could uh, talk to myself and say, look, I'm 32 years old. What I can do from now? What I want to do in my life? I was always an ambitious person and I would like to dream the highest as I can and try to achieve that. And during the year, I d- just had this idea of buying a soccer club and I started preparing myself. Of course, it, it's not like uh, something that you can just dream and do, but you know, you need to prepare yourself. And like, I, I studied like a lot and talking to people and doing my network and my strategy and until I got to this point where. I feel very uh, empowered and comfortable that I can buy and run a club.
0: What's your um, footballing background? You mentioned um, that so many others have had the dream of making it as a footballer. What's your background in it? Nothing. <laughs> I don't have anything in football, but it's not
1: something that you cannot learn. Uh, you just, if you dive into it, you learn it. And, and I, nowadays I feel that I, I learned so much in the past few years that I can I can talk to anyone in you know in any level of, of soccer even like uh, in in management of a club like 2 days ago I was talking to the vice president of Barcelona and and how to run a club right so something that you can just stop and and learn you just need to be focused on on that so I I don't I don't say that look I I just don't have the, the background on that, but I rely on a lot of people that I knew in, the, in this industry and to learn from them. And, and at some point, I I'll I I know how to do it.
0: A lot of people would be intimidated and scared even to talk to those people. What role does confidence play?
1: I think confidence is built upon a time. So, of course, in the beginning, I didn't know how to talk to these people. But I knew finance, I knew marketing, I knew you know HR strategies. uh, I was in management, so it doesn't. These kind of things doesn't change from industry to industry, you know. So uh, finance is finance everywhere, right? So when you have this uh, this mindset, you can talk to anyone in any industry. Uh, And I remember talking to people after my conference at Yale. uh, one of the persons that I remember to talk a lot about it is, was Ibru Coxal. She was former CEO of Galatasaray, and she was a Harvard student. So, like, a very knowledgeable person. But I uh, I remember at the time that I talked to her, I presented my, my project, she was very skeptical that I didn't have the knowledge or the experience, the background to, to execute it. But I remember that... I was talking in like kind of in the details, of, and I was challenging her to uh, you know what I'm doing wrong here. Like, tell me where I didn't realize the truth of soccer. Like, and then she was like, she couldn't uh, challenge me on my assumptions. At that point, I remember, like I started getting confidence because I was challenging the person that run Galatasaray for so many years.
0: And I think like um, confidence you build every day. So you mentioned you went to Yale University being one of the most perhaps prestigious universities in the world. While at Yale, you started the Yale Soccer Conference that actually got a good amount of attention. Uh, I remember even when some of the first times that I heard about it, I was making the assumption that it had been around for quite some time. But actually, it's a, it's a very recent thing. And you're one of the co-founders of it. Um, how did you go about that? Yeah,
1: that, that was uh, something very special for me. Uh, I was a uh... The captain of the soccer club at Yale School of Management, and normally the this this soccer club that we just play some tournaments among the MBAs, we just play for fun, you know. Like when I was a captain there, I was just feeling that look, soccer is a big industry, you know, like the most important sport in the world. Why we're not covering the business of it? We are in a business school, and it should just cover the business of soccer as well, right? So then we invited uh, Fernando Palomo to be a guest speaker at some point, and he came, and, and, and it was a great success. So we, we brought Palomo, and we, we, we filled a room of people interested to, to hear him. you know. And after that speech, we felt that, look, we need to organize a conference because people really liked Palomo, and soccer is a passion for most of people here. And then we just had the idea of organizing this conference. And of course, it's so difficult to do it for the first time, for especially, right? Because people, you don't have attendees, you don't have a track record to, to show people that are going to be great. But then we started inviting people to, to speak. And we got like huge names, like Barcelona came, like a board member of Barcelona. We brought Bayern Munich, we brought La Liga, Bundesliga. ESPN came from like bringing Palomo, bringing uh, Mario Campes and Antonieta Collins. So uh, it's, it was a great conference that uh, uh, that we did. And I remember that we in the beginning to to invite speakers was so difficult because people was very were very skeptical about it. Like, oh, how do I know that are gonna work? Like they needed to book their their flights to come, and they they were not just believing it. I remember like two weeks before the conference, I started getting calls. I got a call from Liverpool and Liverpool said, look, we want to bring someone to speak at your conference. And I said, no, we don't have any more rooms for anyone to speak, you know. So I had to say no to Liverpool. And I got, I got a call from La Liga and Bundesliga yeah. wanting to, to come to speak. And in the end of the day, we had like 400 people attending the, the conference, 11 media companies to cover the event. And we were in the news all over the world. And for the first time ever uh, that we organized this conference, we did. We organized the second largest conference at Yale at that year. So it was a huge success. Uh, I cannot even say. Uh, I just thank for everyone that uh, make make you work with me.
0: Amazing. Well, c- congratulations on that. And hopefully, when things turn back to normal, you know we all get an opportunity to attend the next one. Because sure. I know that there was plans to have it again this year in, was it October or something?
1: Yeah, we we were planning to do the second second edition in, in October. But, of course, uh, things got, got crazy now, so we need to postpone. But I, I just know that uh, the second edition, I wanted to have you on the stage,
0: for <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll be on stage and you'll be the only one in the audience then. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> Um, So while you're at Yale, you start 165 Capital. How and why did you do it? So
1: I remember that I I was so excited after the conference about the success of it. And I got so many connections that I felt like, look, I I need to work in soccer. This is my thing. This is my passion. I just found myself now, you know. And then I I didn't know like what, what path I should pursue in soccer. I could work for a club. I could just work in a side company in soccer, like consulting firms for, for clubs or, you know, marketing firms. Or I could work for a league. I could work for an um, investor group like uh, Fenway, something like that, or our Citigroup. I didn't just know, like, uh, which place would be better for me. And I, I started, like, talking to people and understanding this industry until at some point that, many reasons I found that it was feasible to buy a club it was possible and then I had the option in the beginning I had the option to choose between buying a club in the US or buying a club in in Europe and I was just studying which market would fit better the, the project and and then I started studying 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 and reading financials of clubs and seeing like and then realized that soccer the soccer market is totally different uh, depending on the country that you're talking about. Uh, there are countries that you, you can make a lot of profits from uh, with a club. There are countries that you can never make a profit uh, and sustainable, etc. So uh, until a point that I got some knowledge that I felt, and, and then I, I built a project that, uh, that I was like studying and I built this project, and then I felt like, look, now it's time to start a company to buy a club. And then we started 165 Capital. And 165 is because we were studying at Yale and the address was 165 Whitney Avenue. So it was the 165 Capital is more of an honor to, to Yale that made that
0: possible. You base some of the un- underlying theories, and that's kind of the, let's call it the innovative part of it, because we're talking about a fairly traditional industry especially as it relates to mm-hmm. you know club ownerships and you know we hear about some of the big ones but even those haven't been around for that long you know when you talk about the Man City Group or you talk about PSG or the way you know Barcelona and some of those clubs have structured themselves but for the most part it's a very traditional old school type of an industry. Uh, some of the theories and let's call the the innovative side of what you've kind of applied to to that as has a lot to do with you know, with analytics, uh, uh, you talk about the inverse logic of the microeconomic theory and, and how that applies to, to football. Um, can you try to break that down for me and explain it in a way as if you were explaining it to someone who has no concept at all of it? Imagine
1: you have an industry that all your competitors are non-profits, right? So everyone in the industry is nonprofit, and, and then suddenly you buy a company in this or you buy a nonprofit in this industry and you run that as a business, as a for-profit business, right? So you are different in this market, right? And then, of course, all your actions are different than your competitors. And, and then you suddenly become profitable. So this is how I see soccer. So most of the clubs today, they are non-profits. You take Real Madrid, for example. Who is the owner? Who owns Real Madrid? It's no one. You know, it's an association. It's, a, it's an institution. But you can buy this institution. Not Real Madrid, for example. But many, most of the clubs out there are associations that you can try to buy. And if you buy an association, and then you can change the management system. And normally normally what happens to this industry is that these associations, these clubs, they are they have the, the short-term views uh, about management. So for example, you get mm, let's get a club here, let's say let's say Benfica, right? In in Portugal. So you get Benfica, they elect their president every two or three years, I don't know. But once the president is there. He wants to be the best president in the history. So he's going to buy the best players. He's going to spend all of the money that he can until he can make like a very strong team to win the league, right? It doesn't make sense for him just to make a good business because if he just controls the business, you know, make it profitable, sustainable. uh, The other president that will come after him, we will spend everything. Because the other president will think that he wants to be the best president, right? So this is the difference between a soccer club association and a soccer club as a business. The, the association thinks in the short term, I want to I wanna win now, not, not tomorrow. And the business wants to win ever. So once you implement a business strategy in a soccer club, you think in the long term. So we're going to do like a strategy plan. To make this club big in the future, not tomorrow, not two days after, but in the future, sustainably. So this is the way that I see uh, soccer today. Most of the clubs are this type of clubs that do not think in the long term. And you, if you are able to buy a club, you can be
0: the different one. There seems to be a perception that football is one of the most unstable industries. You contradict this. How? Right. right. Not, not only me, like, but
1: I read the, the book of uh, Stefan Smansky, one of the most famous books in, in, in soccer, which is called Soccernomics. That's a very good one, yeah. Yeah, that's an amazing one. The, the one that I just got uh, from me with me like, all the time. Because this, this, this is the book that uh, everyone needs to read uh, to run a club. So uh, in this book, uh, Stefan Smansky states that soccer is one of the most stable industries. In the world, if you take, for example, uh, all the clubs in, 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 the, in the top leagues in, in Europe, right? Uh, like more than 80% of them still exists after 100 years. So they, they, they are the same clubs that we knew from 100 years ago. So you cannot see that stability in any industry, even in a bank. Like even banks, you know, you cannot see that stability. And, and there are many reasons why it's so stable, and uh, Stephen's Musk uh, shows a lot of them. But I'll tell you one that is not in his book, but I think is one of the most important ones: is that uh, clubs they have a lot of debts, right? So uh, most of the clubs you get you get in Portugal or Spain or whatever the country, most of the clubs are insolvents, so they have more debts than the the club values themselves. Like, so, uh, for example, you have a club here that values like 20 million, right? But has like 40 million in debt. So why do you just, why this club exists, right? So uh, the reason is that the debt holders cannot execute a club. If you're a bank, right? And this club owns you 40 million euros. You cannot just go to the the laws and try to get this money from the club or make this club to bankruptcy, you know. Why? Because you're a bank, you have a lot of clients in the country and many of your clients are fans from this club. And if, if they know that you are the re- responsible for, you're the responsible for this club to, uh, to bankrupt, so they will stop being your client. So the reason why, one of the reasons why clubs do exist after so long time is that the debt holders do not have the power to execute the debts.
0: You outline like four pillars that kind of answer the kind of why investing in football. Let's go through each one of those. So from the increase in club revenue and broadcasting rights and deals, you know, portfolio diversification looking at historic clubs that are, you know, scarce assets and and then also the component of financial fair play. Because I think that's really interesting because mm-hmm. it, it it gives you some of those insights as to the why of investing in football.
1: Yeah, those are some of the reasons, but there are many more as well. But let's take, for example, the financial fair plays as the first. So in, in the past, uh, the clubs were, uh, were like... Uh, a business, right but that every year they made a loss, and then for, for some reason, like let's say a billionaire from uh, Russia just bought a club, and then like he doesn't want to make a profit, he just wants to to win a title or to be recognized as a you know as the guy that made the club to grow. So
0: it's a vanity project, basically.
1: Yeah, for, for that reason, like uh, clubs were like always in debt and always spending more than they earned. But these clubs that were um, owned by these powerful people were the ones that stood out in the past. But then for, uh, at some point, the UEFA introduced the financial fair place rules, which means that uh, these clubs cannot spend more than the earn. That is a basic rule, right? But what in the end made it happen is that now you can compete with these guys, even though if they are billionaires and if you're not, and you have a club, you can compete with them because they cannot just spend more than the earn. If you relate to the, to the economy itself, let's say you have a, I'm seeing, a, I'm seeing a wine here in front of me. So, uh, Let's see if you have a wine company, right? It costs you $3 to produce a wine. If you you sell this wine for $2 below your cost, right? You can drop everyone from competition because no one can produce this wine lower than you. And you're going to win the market. This is predatory pricing, right? In soccer, it's the opposite. But it still happens The predatory pricing. If you are the club that spends much more than your competitors, you're going to win the leagues. But this is Predatory. And then the financial fair place came to, to solve that issue. So now, now it's much better than, than never for you to, to be in an in a industry of soccer and still be profitable. Because then you have like fair competition. The second reason is the stability or the broadcasting rights still is always growing. So if you like this is more like a financial perspective of like a professional investor, you have like a sort a certain way to measure. The connection or, or the correlation between a market and the, or between a company and the market, which is called beta. Beta is the, this, uh, this measurement. And, and soccer is not correlated with the market. So it's an industry where you can still grow or you can still be stable even though the market is crashing. So if you take, for example, the coronavirus crisis now, you're going to see that soccer. Uh, is more reliable and more and more stable than the other markets. You see that tourism is going, is crashing. Uh, you see that, uh, like, uh, real estate for probably is, is, is getting very worse. Uh, but if you, you can argue that soccer clubs are, are uh, you know, like putting less people in the stadiums, right? But what happens is that the, the majority of revenues from a club comes from TV rights, and this is long-term contracts that doesn't change from any crisis. So if you get, for example, uh, the next season, suppose that now, because of the corona crisis, we put like 50% less people in stadiums. But most of your revenues uh, would not change because it comes from TV rights. And TV rights is always growing, especially in the crisis now because people are home, you know, people are like uh, tending, like seeing, like watching TVs more or even a social network, social media. So this makes the, the, the product of soccer to be more valuable. So that's why it's so rel- uh, so resilient to crisis. So this is a, another reason to, why to invest in soccer. The third one I would say is um, the scarcity of the assets. This one I, I just learned when I came to, to Portugal and Spain to buy a club. There are no clubs on sale. Just simple as that. The ones that are on sale, they they are insolvent. So as I said, like uh, the club values like 10 million, but why are you paying 20 million? You you will never pay 20 million for an asset that values just 10, right? And and then like the ones that are on sale, they have so so much debt that you just cannot buy. So I was in Spain, like, uh, and the oldest club in Spain is called Huelva, right? Huelva is the most uh, the oldest club there, and they have like more than $20 million or 20 million euros in debt. And if you do the valuation of this club, it values 7 million. It values 7 million and it has like 20 million in debt. So why are you buying this club? You never buy this club. You're not crazy. So the ones, and whoever is on sale for, for instance, but the ones that are on sale, mostly most of them are insolvent, right? So... Uh, you cannot find a very uh, a stable club, you know, like a healthy club that you can buy. It's just not possible. There are so many people here that came to Portugal and Spain trying to buy clubs, but ju- they, they just lose their time. To buy a club, it, money is not enough. You need to convince an association, for example, uh, in a healthy club to, to sell the club for you. And to convince these people to sell for you, it requires a lot of strategy, requires a lot of efforts. You need to come here and to man, you need to talk to these people like almost every day in order to convince them to sell to you.
0: How did you do that? Or how do you do that?
1: Well, um, when you negotiate uh, to buy a club, you need to understand what they want. And most of the times, the club owners are not uh, individuals, right? They are these associations. So what these associations want. And the answer is that they want a project to grow their club. If you bring them money, they don't want, because there is no one that is going to put the money in their pocket. The money is going to go to the association in the end and not to an individual. So they will not sell you for any money. They will sell you if you show them a project. So I will not tell the name of the club that we're negotiating. But one of the ideas that we, we did a, like a, a proposal and an offer for them that includes, of course, money, but also like many initiatives that we, we will implement in the club and in the community. One of the initiatives is a foundation in which we're going to like the club will, uh, will assure some uh, budget for this association and this association will help the community. So, for example, in the corona crisis or in any, uh, you know, catastrophe that can happen. So we are assuring that uh, some of the money that we make goes to this foundation. And this is the kind of things that these sellers want to hear, that we are engaged with the community, that we are bringing a project for the club, a project to grow uh, the club on the field as well. So there are many investors that came to Portugal and Spain they just want to to absorb the club you know brand for the owner like the owner can be just from a billionaire unknown unknown billionaire in the world that just can be like a, a famous guy just because they own a club now so but they just don't not don't have this uh, this this project to to take care of the club or other other investors come just to uh, to earn money from Players transfers, so they just use the club as a bridge to bring players. You know the player plays well, and they sell the player, and the club never wins anything, right? And they make a lot of money. So there are many kinds of investors in this market, but these kind of these guys, they fail to buy clubs. They are failing to buy clubs nowadays because people know what what their, the reasons behind it.
0: Yeah, there's a fair amount of groups and people who are interested in buying clubs. I mean, I see it even from this end, you know, Americans and and American companies kind of wanting to get into it. But uh, it is almost surprising at times how unsavvy Mm -hmm. they are about the cultural nuances, understanding the underlying passion that's in football, because it's unlike any other sport. Like how deep it sits in certain communities and, and societies. Like there's all these different factors that a lot of people who may have money, to your point, to offer, they run into obstacles because they don't understand all those important details. I don't know if it's surprising, but you, you do raise your eyebrows when when you hear some of these stories, you know?
1: Yeah. Uh, just another example, like uh, the club that we're buying now, a company came here to buy this club and offered twice as much as we are but they couldn't buy this club as twice as much. Talking to the vice president of this club, he said, "Like, look, the guy never came here to talk to us in person. They, he always sent someone. We don't know yeah, who is this there guy. You, go. you know, so they don't want the money. The money is just like something else because it goes to the association not to their pocket. So you need to come here to take care of the club. You know, like to say, look, we are going to grow the brand." Uh, we're gonna engage with the community we're gonna grow professionally on on the on field you know like grow and, and and try to to win titles we're not here as a Chinese billionaire to buy a club and just to, to get the brand for himself we are pers- we're people that brings a project to this club so this is what's the, the kind of things that they want to hear in order to sell the club for you
0: When you started off this project, you did an overall industry analysis, Mm -hmm. looking at leagues all over the world, teams all over the world. Mm -hmm. uh, Ended up narrowing it down to Spain and Portugal. What went into that?
1: That's very specific about our project itself. Like We think that there are many ways that you can be successful when we buy a a club. But our strategy is something like that. We want to buy a club that is strong, very traditional, very historic club that has a big fan base, but for some reason today they are not in a good condition. So we want to turn around this club, unpack their their commercial potential, and engage again with the fan base and grow in division. So once we grow in division, this division that we are we aim to grow should be enough to make a sustainable club work. If you take, for example. Uh, the Spanish second league, La Liga B, right? You see some clubs there that are very profitable, even though they're in the second division. That doesn't happen to England, for example. In the championship league in England, every single club are unprofitable. They make losses and losses every year in League One and League Two as well. So why we are buying a club in England if we we just can make money if you grow to the Premier League, which is huge, right? But... In Spain, for example, you can be profitable in the second league. In Portugal, you can, you can be profitable in the second league. You can be very profitable in the first league. So when we were having these uh, examples of clubs that were like making a lot of money in these leagues, we found that, look, if we buy a club that is, that is in a lower division, we grow this club again to the, the, the highest division, and it will become like a, a profitable club, and we're going to make the investors very happy when we sell this club. And again, this very scarce asset. So once we are in the first division, for example, in Portugal, we would be the first, the only club that is on sale, and the only club that is on sale, but that is solvent or that doesn't have like a lot of debt.
0: Is that clear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it makes sense. It's really interesting that also the comparison they drew to England, for instance, because there's a lot of these perceptions when we talk about football and the and the football industry like these perceptions about when you say that well in england you know clubs are doing you know so well there's so much money there that's where the players earn the most money and so on and then you talk about you know the more southern european countries such as you know whether it's italy or spain or or portugal and the perception is always there that you cannot be profitable in in those countries it's chaos um that's really interesting, that perspective that, that you provide to it. Um, to break down the process a little bit further, so from doing kind of the overarching industry analysis to narrowing it down to you know, these potential leagues and countries, now it's time to, to go shopping, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you actually do? What's the next step? Who do you talk to? Who helps you? Mm-hmm. How does that work? So the shopping part
1: is kind of very fun. Uh, We hired two brokers, one in Portugal and another broker in Spain. They are people that um, are very connected. They know the owners. They know which clubs could potentially sell. And these people schedule for us visits. And we talk to. we come. And we we spent more than a month traveling around and meeting the president of the clubs, the owner, the owners. And what we do in these meetings uh, is first we, we ask for for their financials. We want to understand if they're, we have our way to evaluate a club, right? So we want to understand if they are an insolvent uh, for the first thing. The second thing is that we want to understand the willingness to sell. This is a very important thing because it can be a waste of time. If you are negotiating with the owner and after two or three months, the guy just give up, doesn't want to sell anymore. So, uh, We don't have that, you know, time to spend. So we want to negotiate with someone that was really, really wants to, to sell the club. So we, we try to get that sense from the owner since the beginning. And and then we, we, we do our financial analysis from the club. Uh, We, we travel around, we talk to, to fans, and then we put everything on the, on the financials to see if that makes sense for investors. And that's very complex, actually, because sometimes you can leverage the club a bit. So if they have uh, certain types of uh, debt that are long-term uh, with banks or with governments that are negotiated already, it's a good type of debt to have. So we, we could just assume this debt for us. We don't need to pay that uh, from day zero. So this is a good debt that we call. And the less that we pay upfront. Uh, bring uh, coming from investors the better so in the end of the day we put everything on the paper and do our analysis and see and calculate how much money the investors can make from this from this business there, there are a lot of assumptions there are a lot of things to consider but it's very compelling the way that we uh, that we compare the clubs we created this uh, this financial perce- perception this this analysis to compare the, the different situations that we found and easily we can go, for example, in Huelva that we went and easily can see that, no, this is, this doesn't, doesn't make sense. You know, even though it was a great club, we loved the club. It just doesn't make sense to buy. And then we go to another club and see like, wow, well, this, this is amazing. And the financials look very great. Even though the club is not that big as, as Huelva, for example, we see that in the paper, it makes a lot of sense. So that once we, we have this financial analysis, and then we can move forward to the next step, which is to make an offer. And then to make an offer is the, the part that I said is most strategy, is strategic for us. Because just an offer wouldn't convince the seller. He wants to, most of the times, they want someone to bring a, a project for them, right? So then we prepare an offer that uh, connects the club to society. That Most of the time, that, that aligns interest from all the, the stakeholders. And if we can align un- the interest, then we have an offer. And then we bring an offer to the, to the owner and we start negotiating. So once we have this offer accepted for them, the next step is to sign an, a letter of intent. The letter of intent is the document that we need to start spending money. Because then the next step would be the due diligence and then we need to hire uh, lawyers and accountants. And of course, we are not hiring someone if we don't know that we can buy the club. So we need to have this letter of intent signed, which means that we have the exclusivity in the deal that they, they are not negotiating with anyone else. And if, even if they are negotiating with someone else, they need to reimb- reimburse us from any, any expensive, expense that we had in the time. The due diligence process is super important as well, Mm because there are many things that can happen to a soccer club or to any business that you can only know if you dive into the numbers and the processes and everything. So suppose that a a club owner says like, look, we have like five million in debt," And then you're just hearing what he's saying, right? He can say five, but in truth can be seven or eight, right? And you can get the right number from the due diligence. And if you have something different from what we negotiated before, you can bring back to the club owner and say, look, you said you, you own like $5 million for banks, but in fact, I, I could see here that you own said So something like that. So after the due diligence is done, then we are ready to move forward
0: to sign the deal. You mentioned that you have a methodology for how to evaluate clubs. Mm-hmm. How do you do that?
1: Yeah, it's super interesting A question, actually. I, I think it's... Uh, Perhaps one of the toughest questions in soccer today, because soccer,
0: uh, the valuation of... Maybe it's even more art than science, you know, because a lot of it is based on science and uh, sometimes there's some arts that needs to go into it. You got it. So in
1: business, normally you evaluate a a company by doing the discounted cash flow methodology, which is called DCF.
0: What does that mean for somebody who who doesn't know it? In a
1: sense, it's kind of we're trying to estimate the future value of a business. So if I can make like uh, $10 million from this business in the future, I can pay up to $10 million now, right? And you discount that to the present value and you say, look, this is the valuation of this business. In a sense, it, it counts more like it only counts the future that you can make than the past. You just don't analyze the past to do the valuation. You just analyze the future right? But soccer clubs are never profitable. You you, you can see like most of the clubs are, you cannot make even a penny from in the end of the year because they are this kind of associations. They are, most of them are non-profits for uh, in in essence. So how can you evaluate a non-profit uh, in in a for-profit acquisition, right? And there are many others, other problems in that valuation as well. Because there are many people that want to buy a club just, be, just to get their brand value. Because soccer is so mediatic, right, that you can have a lot of value only for owning a club. I'll give you an example. Red Bull. Red Bull bought Bragantino in Brazil. And they paid a lot of money, much more than anyone could value Bragantino, but they paid But Red Bull is in the news all the time in Brazil now. So they they got free media just because they own Bergantino. That is a lot of money. So how can you put that in a valuation? It's kind of impossible. So soccer can bring you many different benefits from an owner that for you to buy a club, you need to have your own valuation, right? So our valuation considers a regular DCF approach so we just do a valuation of what we should do in, every, in, in any company for a soccer club. So that immediately relates to what professional investors want to find. But when we, let's say we have a valuation of, we value a club of 10 million euros, right? In our methodology. Mm-hmm. But we know that the owner cannot value the club the same way. So we try to find a club that the owner does not know how to evaluate that club so that we can buy in a cheap price. But we, at the same time, we know that when we're going to sell the club, there will be owners, there will be uh, investors that will value other aspects of the business. So they will be willing to pay even more than we are evaluating the, in the exit. So this is uh, something that we consider as well. We, we definitely can buy a club in a lower price than its values. And we definitely can sell a club in a higher price in the future.
0: Take me through the investment structure of the fund. How much are you raising from how many investors and what types of investors are those?
1: So we are raising 8.5 million euros. We expect to have from 10 to 15 investors maximum. The minimum investment is 170,000 euros that comes from um, uh, in an invitation basis. So it's not an open fund. So we cannot just, anyone can invest, it needs to talk to us and we need to approve or we need to invite in person. And the reason is that first, because we need to comply with the rules and the rules of uh, private placement, which is the, the name, it should be by invitation. And second, because we want to have a concise group of investors. All of our 12 or 10 to 15 investors will be people that are, you know, renowned in the world that doesn't have any, any personal problems, you know. And so we need to approve them to be with us. Some of these people, we call them as smart money, that they, should, they will not bring only the money to the table, but also they are advice for us because uh, we need to understand that even though Danilo and I are my, my partner, we, we are confident that we can do a great work but we never worked in soccer before so uh, whenever you have a, a big problem to solve who who can we call to to help us to decide some, or of some big matter so we can call the investor and say look you as uh, like a businessman or you as like a, a media professional from soccer how do you go to this with this problem no. you mentioned the structure and, and the structure there are two type of gains when you have a company you can have a gain from dividends or you can have a capital gain. For example, you can buy a company and you do not have any dividend, any dividends, but then you sell your shares. But your shares now, you sell for a higher price. So you had, you had a capital gain from your shares, but you didn't have dividends, right? So And you have two types of taxations. You have a, a tax from dividends and tax, tax from capital gain. And our project, the, the returns from investors comes from capital gain mostly we need to have a a structure to minimize the taxes on capital gain. And that comes to us uh, to the conclusion that we need to have a company in Luxembourg. So we're going to have a a limited partnership and general partnership in Luxembourg company. And this company will be the owner of the Portuguese entity or the Portuguese club, right? So this company in Luxembourg is the most tax-efficient company to investors. So in the end of the day, Everything they earn will basically be like tax-free, almost.
0: Does that also mean that, as an entity, that you pay less taxes in Portugal and that you report your taxes in Luxembourg, or how does that work? Yeah,
1: in like there, there are like many, uh, many agreements between countries, right? So one of them that can happen is the the non non-double taxes, taxation. So uh, in in the European Union as a whole, if you are taxed in a country, you cannot be taxed in, this, in the other country. So this is the non-double taxation mm-hmm. rule. And Portugal and Luxembourg, of course, they do have the same. So if I have a capital gain from a company in Luxembourg, even though the, the, the asset is in Portugal, it cannot be double taxed. So I just pay the tax in Luxembourg based on their regulations, and we don't need to pay the tax in Portugal. So that's totally uh, the way that people do, right? So,
0: um, is that anything that people question? No,
1: no, not at all. Uh, it's the way that uh, the the world runs today. We, we, you need to find the the best structure. Of uh, that, that is a very in, in, interesting question, actually. So, w- whenever you have like a, this. Uh, worldwide you know structure of a company most of the time you need to hire some some expert person or company to help you to understand the best structure for it so we hired a, a, a an office here a law officer that uh, provides us with this this information that this would be the best structure for our company and this is the way that by most of the companies in the world do to
0: I know you have some really interesting people who are on board with the project. Can you mention a few of those?
1: Yes, uh, for sure you remember Giuliano Belletti,
0: right? Absolutely. Belletti. For the younger generation who are not maybe familiar with Belletti, who is he?
1: Giuliano Belletti is a former player from Brazil and he, he won a World Cup and he won a Champions League for Barcelona and he scored the golden goal of Barcelona in the Champions League. And nowadays, he is the only ambassador of Barcelona in the world, which tells a lot about him. He is just a star outside of the field. He's very respectable and very knowledgeable. So Belletti will be joining us as a full-time partner in the club to implement this uh, this winning culture. Uh, besides Belletti, we have Gilberto Silva as well. Gilberto is another legend from Brazil uh, and Arsenal, right? He's, uh, he is known by the, the invisible wall and Gilberto is also a, a gentleman outside of the field. He works, he has a company in England. He lives there and actually he, he helps the big clubs that he, he played uh, to hire players. So he's basically um, a filter between the agents and the, this, in the, in the, in the clubs and Gilberto is going to be helping us to, to buy and sell players, basically. Well, so once we have a good player in our club, of course, it's very difficult to call the attention of the big clubs, the buyers. So Gilberto, can you help us to you know, tell Arsenal about our player, these kind of things? We also have um, Paul Tuchman. Paul is a lawyer in the US, and he is the former prosecutor that uh, worked in the FIFA case. You remember that that arrested mm-hmm. many big names on FIFA. So Paul, took, Paul was the, the, the prosecutor in the US that started this uh, yep. this case, and, and he's renowned today as a, known today as one of the guys that most fought corruption in soccer. And he uh, he's our yep. lawyer today. So it's another big name, and we have Ibro Koxal as a, an, an advisor for us. Ibro it, was not so connected to this search phase and acquisition. But of course she's gonna be very helpful when we are running the club. She has so many experience, so important experience running a lot of SRI. So anytime that we have some struggle, we can call her and just ask for for advice. She's a really interesting character. Yes, she's amazing. I love her. There are some other guys in, in Brazil and that worked for São Paulo and Palmeiras that, that will, will be our advisors.
0: Very interesting. Um I understand that in the, um, in the model that you guys have built, promotion plays an important role mm-hmm. in it, right? Yeah. So it's built into the model that the team will be promoted within X amount of time. How do you go about calculating the probability of promotion?
1: Yeah, so that's the core of the, the strategy, actually. So if you take the book Soccernomics, you can understand that soccer is probabilistic. As any other sport, if you take like a money ball, for example, it's all based on probability, right? So now like uh, in baseball, you need to hire, you hire players based on numbers, right? So once you understand that soccer is like that, you can play with the numbers, right? So uh, Stefan Manske tells us and teaches us that uh, if you have the highest payroll in any league, you maximize your chances to win that league. And there is a high correlation between payroll and league position. So what we are doing is that we are investing not only to buy the club, but to have a big budget to be the highest payroll in the second league in Portugal. If we we are the highest payroll in that league, we maximize this chance of promotion, right? But it's still not perfect. I cannot assure 100% uh, of league promotion if I have the highest budget, of course, so then we calculated the uh, the probabilities based on like linear regression and it's very statistical models, you know, that we came to the number, exactly number, that brought to us the the conclusion that we have we have 40% chances of being promoted in any single year. So if I have 40% in a year, in two years, I can almost be sure to be promoted. Or in three, or in four, or in five. So what I need to assure is that I I still have the highest payroll. In if I'm not promoted now, in the next year, then in the third year, in the fourth year, but the numbers will will at some point make us uh, promoted to the first division.
0: And in order to have some of the highest payrolls, obviously, you need to increase revenue by quite a bit. How are you going to do that?
1: Yeah. It, more or less. Uh, actually, we can have the highest payroll, not having the highest revenue, because we, we can inject capital in the club. So let's say we have like a million dollars, a million euros in, in revenues, but we want to have like four millions in payroll. We just inject three million more and then we have like the highest payroll. So we can do that. That's, the, that's our model. That goes against the financial fair play, uh, as you can imagine, right? But the financial fair play for, just serves for the UEFA Championship Leagues, not to the second division in Portugal. So here we still can play with the numbers and to the, let's say, I, I call it unfair competition, but that's what it is. And it's not against the rules. So we, we are planning to inject capital in the budget of the club to make it the highest payroll in the league and then we grow from there. Uh, And if we don't grow in the first league, in first year, we inject the same captain in the second year, and we have, again, 40% chances, and so on and so forth, until we get to the first division.
0: With the methodology that that you guys have with uh, economic analysis, uh, you know, calculated statistical probabilities, can anyone learn, copy, and apply this model somewhere else to buy another club? Yeah, it's possible,
1: um, I, and I, I'm here to teach anyone to do so. I don't think that is easy, but if anyone is willing to follow the same steps, I'm happy to, to help. I just don't think it's so it's, it's easy because other than learning how to do, you need to have the skin on the game, which is the most difficult part. I've, I've been out of the market uh, not working for more than a year now and I need to survive from my funds that I had in the past and from my family's help or sometimes to uh, get a bit loan from friends just to be here and to do this thing, you know. And that's the tough part because it takes time to buy a club and I- I'm not sure if people are willing to to take that risk. Thank you. Thank you.
0: We're getting towards the end here. I want to shoot a set of uh, rapid-fire questions. If there's anything you want to elaborate on, feel free to do so. Um, you already mentioned your favorite team, Sao Paulo. If you can't say Messi or Ronaldo, who's the best player in the world? I like Mane, actually. What's a recommendation to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? Do an MBA. Who's a business leader you look up to and you think people should follow?
1: Steve Jobs. He's the guy that um, knows how to work in in crisis. And it's easy to be uh, a businessman when the time is, is foolish, but it's tough to be a businessman when you have a crisis in your face.
0: You already mentioned uh, Soconomics as one of your top books. What are some other uh, book recommendations that you have? Real Madrid Way, which is uh, talking about the culture
1: about Real Madrid, which uh, was a turning point for them. them. Um, Negotiations Genius, which uh, teaches you how to think about the other side. When you're in the negotiations table, you don't need to take more on the pie for yourself but you need to know how to expand the pie, knowing how the other part thinks and offering them what is valuable for them.
0: How can people follow you?
1: At 165 Capital in Instagram, or my name, Tyro Raruda, on
0: LinkedIn. Do you have anything you would like to recommend?
1: Yeah, everything is possible. Everything is possible in the world. And this journey that I'm doing now is just starting but I have much bigger dreams and I'll, I will pursue them. And that's the, the thing that I recommend to everyone. If you're not thinking, uh, if, your, if your dream doesn't scare you, you're
0: not thinking big enough. Last one. Who do you think I should interview on this podcast?
1: I think you should interview Belletti. He will give you some, some different insights from soccer.
0: That would be fascinating.
1: I can, I can help you to talk to him.
0: That'd be fantastic. Absolutely. And, and it would be in addition to, you know obviously, his journey and everything that, that he has done, but it would be really interesting to also hear his perspectives mm-hmm. on the project.
1: Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. And a, a, sec- a second person, Stefan. You should interview Stefan. Stefan's musky. You know him.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Stefan would be great. I don't know him personally at all, but uh, Stefan would be a really good one. I've obviously, you know, read read his books and and followed him for for quite some time. He's incredible. Fantastic. I'll hit you up on those two for sure. Uh Tyro, thanks so much for your time and and for sharing. I mean, I don't know, maybe you even shared more than you're supposed to. I feel like, you know, I haven't gone to Yale, but this was really, you know, a second uh master's uh, degree that I got here over the Almost past couple of hours, so I appreciate it very, very much. I'm, I'm sure people will appreciate it. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating subject. It's one of those uh, unachievable, crazy dreams that a lot of us in football have had. You're pursuing it, so all I can say, man, you've, you've already succeeded. So congratulations on that, and best of luck as you move forward.
1: Oh, Sebastian, you have been so humble, humble. You, you know everything that I said, but uh, I just need to thank you for. For doing that with me. like uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that you need to, to work hard on editing everything that I said to make make things better for, for people. But I've just been honored to talk to you and see him again.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Also. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, write a review, tell your friends about it. I would really appreciate it as I try to grow this podcast one listener at a time. Thanks again. I will be back next week with a new episode. Have a good one.